Welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. We're the first and only podcast that invites the most powerful leaders in the country and asks them to be totally vulnerable and share their flaws, their imperfections, and of course, their wisdom. Our goal isn't to embarrass guests, rather it's to inspire our listeners to become more self-aware and to get an early start developing the exact leadership skills valued by the country's most admired organizations. If you like the show, we invite you to subscribe for free at www.imperfectleaders.com. And until then, sit back and enjoy the show. Today's guest is a guy named Tom Selig. No, not the famous actor and sex symbol from the hit TV show Magnum P.I. in the 1980s, but an extremely smart and well-respected healthcare CEO of a global technology and pharmaceutical company called Adair. He's also an old friend of mine from college, Vanderbilt University, so I know firsthand that he's an amazing guy and a great leader. During this conversation, I tried something a little unique. Rather than just ask Tom the standard questions about healthcare and leadership, actually interview him. What were some of your toughest career challenges? What shaped your core values? What leadership skills are most important? How do you create a corporate culture and what does culture even mean? In other words, I kind of turned the table on on my old friend and put him through the same kind of interview top CEO candidates experience all the time when trying to land their next big leadership role. Anyway, I hope you'll enjoy it. But it does feel like, you know, an interesting time where uh, in both pharmaceutical and biotech. And I think you once said it actually was a watershed moment. Why is that? Yeah, well, so thinking about, you know, what's kind of dominated the world in the last few years has been COVID, right? And and I'm really proud to be part of the industry that has helped, um, you know, develop and actually produce and be able to distribute in a mass basis uh, a, a cure for a very, very, you know, nasty disease and not just one disease, but as it, it morphs and, and, and uh, kind of replicates into, into different formats. And so the, the way the industry responded as a whole, and there is a large number of players in this broad ecosystem has been, been fantastic. And if you look at the investment that's gone into um, research and development, not just for infectious disease, but a whole range of, of indications and therapeutic areas, it really is a remarkable time to be in this industry. Um, you know, personalized medicine is coming of age. And, you know, you talk about all these cell and gene therapies that are out there that are doing just amazing, um, you know, amazing things to, to address you know, issues that, that people have been facing for years. So, so it is a super exciting time to be in this industry. And, and what, is, what is personalized medicine and what is Adair's role in, it, in that industry? Yeah, so um, personalized medicine is basically understanding the composition of an individual's unique DNA and and based on that DNA being able to deliver medicine in a way that will address your specific your specific issues right so we're not there in all the disease states um, but for example we're working with a um, an innovative company out of out of Europe that has a digital platform for um, and it's a, a drug device combination product for addressing just just that personalized medicine so it can know based on your your specific makeup or, or profile, uh, how much drug to deliver and what type of drug to deliver over time to address address different types of indications, right? So, so we actually are working with them on helping formulate a number of different 
um, active ingredients to deliver through this um, digital um, drug device platform. How far away are we in general for this kind of technology to hit the mass market? I mean, will, will, will it be one day soon where I can actually get, you know, something like that using your technology to deliver exactly the right combination of drugs at exactly the right time that I need? Um, yeah, you know, you can, you know, without too much challenge, go out and have your, your full DNA profile, right? And you think about how, you know, it wasn't that long ago when, when it was really challenging to do that. But, you know, for I don't know, a couple thousand dollars, you can, you can have it profiled and you can actually manage your, your own, you can take control of your own, um, you know, journey, medical journey, if you will, in, in terms of what, what you need to do, because certain products are going to react better with your body than others. So, you know, again, not, not all products are offered in all therapeutic areas, but more and more day by day, you're seeing products get approved that, that are attacking these, um, you know, this, this type of underlying issue. That's so cool. And, and I mean, will that somehow be integrated with say like an Apple watch that can monitor, you know, my health and maybe inject me with the right medicine at the right time? Or is that Yeah, I mean, wear, wearable technology is becoming more and more mainstream day by day, you know, not only Apple, but there's a wide range of other, you know, diagnostic devices that, that are out there that can give you real time data and, and help, again, help you take much better control of your own, your own healthcare. So uh, it's such an interesting company, you know, tell me a little bit more about Adair. What is their background and what is, what is your vision for the company? Yeah. So, you know, as we think about the pharmaceutical ecosystem, right. And you think about contract development and manufacturing organizations, that's kind of the space we compete in. There's, there's literally hundreds of these organizations around the world. And so our, our, our vision is to become the leader in small molecule technology, right. And there's, small molecules, large molecule, there, there's other types of um, platforms. Um, we specialize today in small molecule. And so the, the, the vision for the next several years is to, to grow to become one of the leading providers in the space. And what, I'm sorry, just tell me the difference between small and big molecule. Yeah, it's, it's really how the product is, um, or how a drug is ultimately delivered in, into, your, into your body. Um, you know, I won't get into all the, all the scientific, uh, but small molecule, Gets, uh, gets delivered usually in an oral solid pill, like in, in a pill, or there, there are other dosage formats, but we specialize in, in oral solid delivery. Gotcha. And um, what, do you what do you see as some of the roadblocks for implementing your strategy over the next few years? Yeah, so, um, you know, as we look to try to globalize, so we have facilities, we have eight facilities around the world today, primarily in U.S. and Europe. But as you look to compete on a global basis with Asia and India, um, you know, there's, you know, today you have more and more geopolitical issues you have to, you have to understand and be able to deal with, um, you know, financing and funding is, is always an issue. And then really, you know, putting your bet on the right technology at the right time, right? It's easy to go buy a bunch of technologies, but if they're not going to really solve, solve problems in the industry, they're, they're not going to do so well. So you have to really understand the, um, the, the business, the science, and then kind of on a macro basis where, where the markets are going and kind of what's in the, the global drug development pipeline and what, what problems you're trying to solve. And, and I've always wondered how leaders like yourself, you know, CEOs of these kinds of uh, high-tech biotech companies actually figure out how to make the right bets. And you say it's, you know, one of the, the key, um, key priorities is really betting on the right thing at the right time. How do you figure that out? 
Yeah, so we're um, you know fortunate to have um, an internal strategic planning team. Um, we also have a couple um, pretty sophisticated investors supporting us, um, Thomas H. Lee and, and Fraser Healthcare. And so, you know, you got teams of professionals that are constantly scouring the landscape to understand, you know, what, what's, what's new and, you know, what, what technologies are emerging. And they kind of balance that with the demand side of the equation, which is, you know, what, what scientists and all these pharma uh, companies, as well as academic institutions are, are, are um, looking to leverage to, again, solve, solve formulation or, or drug development um, challenges. Interesting. Um, and so let's go a little bit further back in your life and talk about your leadership and career journey. I don't know if the listeners know, but I went to school with you at Vanderbilt University. Yeah. And by the time I met you, you already seemed like a, you know, a charismatic, natural leader. Where, where the hell did these skills and this confidence come from, Tom? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, so I grew up in a, a relatively small town called Glens Falls, New York, in upstate New York, the, the foothills of the Adirondacks. And, um, you know, I grew up playing, you know, many different sports and, you know, spent a lot of time in the outdoors. And, and as you think about, you know, not necessarily survival skills, but being outdoors and, you know, the, the freezing cold and, and um, you know, being in some, some pretty hairy situations, you learn pretty quickly you know, what, what you have to do to be able to, to, to get by. And, and I, I guess took some of those skills into, um, you know, my personal life and, have, you know, had a you know, strong influence by my parents as well, who, who uh, may, maybe taught me well and, and how to interact in, uh, in a variety of situations and kind of taken the, the, the competitive nature and, and outdoor sports with some of the, the life lessons I learned from my parents and maybe blend all that together into a, a way that allowed me to, uh, you know, try to get along with people. Man, I don't want to put you on the therapist couch right now, but like, what were what were your parents like? And you know, you say that they they taught you well. In what yeah. ways, or do you remember any kind of moments where you know they helped shape your core values or things that you truly believe in, or help you yeah. become the person you are? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so my dad was an orthopedic surgeon. My mom's a speech therapist. Um, they both spent their careers taking care of others. And, you know, really learned through them the, the value of, um, you know, caring for others. And, and I've tried to put that as, as a mantra almost for my leadership in a way of thinking about how to influence, you know, whether it's people below, across or above me. And, um, you know, thinking about their perspectives and, and if I can help make them successful, it's, it's ultimately going to make me more successful. So I learned that very early on. One, one story real quick, I was out to dinner and um, a nun came up to my dad and she, she couldn't stop hugging him. And, you know, she's like, you saved my life, right? And another story, I was in the gym one day and this, this kid came up to me and we're the only ones that working out and he's a big, strong guy. And I told him my name and he, he started crying. He's like, your dad, he goes, I was in a snowmobile accident. I broke 27 bones in my body and your dad spent about five or six surgeries putting me back together and, you know, had a really remarkable um, you know, effect on me just thinking about, Hey, you know, how can you really, really help others? Amazing. And, and your mom, the same way as a speech therapist. Yeah. You know, just, just countless stories of her taking people that, you know, either had strokes or some kind of speech disorder and, and kind of helping them get back on, on their feet or, or dealing with their issues so they can communicate again. So, um, you know, my dad was probably a little more introverted and academic and, you know, naturally curious. My mom's probably a little bit more extroverted and, uh, and social and 
blend all that together. And I guess somewhere in the middle is where, where I came out. Do you think that you're more introverted or extroverted naturally? Uh, I, um, yeah, I'm more, more extroverted, but you know, there, there are times in certain situations when, uh, I'll, uh, I'll want to shut it down and, and, uh, kind of recluse away from, uh, from everybody else. In these core values, you know, one you say is like really wanting to help other people. And a lot of people talk a big game around that, but you really have experienced that and believed in that since a little child watching both your mom and your, your dad help other people. And, and has it served you well as a leader or at times do you think that maybe you're too, like you can be too naive in certain situations because you're always helping people? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, it, it's this been a learned skill over time. Early on, I was much more self-centered and it was all about me, right? And, and I would say it, it's taken time and, and years to really understand that it's actually not about you. It's about everybody else other than you. And if you're more focused on everyone else, then, you know, you, you're going to end up doing better than if you just worry about yourself. So, I mean, a lot of people tell you, hey, you got to take your own career into your hands. And yes, I believe that. But in doing so... You have to figure out how other people are wired and what's important to them and what motivates them. And in doing so, you know, you're going to figure out how to, how to help them be successful. And the more people you help succeed, you know, ultimately the more successful you will be. And you know, I think you, you all know this in, in your, your career as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, if I think about right after you graduated from Vanderbilt, um, what was the first job? And you say that maybe at first you, it was a little bit more about you, but what was that first job in your experience like? Yeah. So, well, you know, it came down, I was going to either be a ski instructor, tennis pro in Colorado, which would be near and dear to your heart, or, um, or I was offered a position with Procter and Gamble. So obviously I took the, the, the professional in Cincinnati. Took, uh, well, I was actually in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, selling shampoo and deodorant and toothpaste and mouthwash and a variety of other things, you know, across small towns in, uh, in North and South Carolina. And, you know, fantastic training and really teach you a lot about selling and, and how to interact with people. So, you know, still to this day, I, I uh, Stu Todd was my first manager and uh, you know, I learned a lot, a lot from him and a lot from the organization. Um. At a very high level after P&G, you know, take me through some of the most important jobs and experiences during your career and what you learned from those experiences. Yeah, so, you know, after P&G, went back to business school and then, you know, I've been in a variety of companies. Um, great learning experiences from large companies like uh, American-owned products, which, you know, then transferred to Wyeth and then, um, then Pfizer and kind of learned how to manage within a, a very large entity and, you know, a little bit more of a bureaucratic organization, I would say, and, and how to manage in that in that type of environment. Um, I then spent some time in a startup pharma company. Went to the to the opposite opposite extreme. And Why did you learned, do that, Tom? What's that? Why did you uh, go to the opposite extreme? Yeah, because I, I felt like, hey, I, I achieved a certain level. You know, as an Advil product manager, I launched Children's Advil, RX, OTC, had some some great great assignments. Um, but I felt you know, I really wanted to challenge myself more and go into a, a small startup company means, okay, you have to figure everything out. You don't have big departments that do everything for you. You have to figure out and, you know, take, take some initiative, take some risks and figure out how to try to make a company successful. So I, I saw it as a great challenge. And, and so you get there to the startup and it's totally different. What, what, how did you feel, you know, the first day that you're on the job there, the first week or the first year, and what did you learn in that job? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're looking around. Yeah, you're looking around like, where's where's this research or this this infrastructure or this uh, 
you know, the, the, the person that does this, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I got to do all this. So you, I learned pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I had a, a real good uh, leader there, a guy named Greg Van Adder, who, who I learned a lot from. And, uh, you know, he helped me acclimate. He had also come from a, a larger company. And, um, but, he, you know, he, he, he showed me ups pretty quickly and helped me figure out that I, I need to, to take ownership and control. And if, if there's not something there, then, then, then you build it. Well, was that a hard transition for you, you know, having a staff and a training program like you did at P&G and all of the resources to going, you know, rolling up your sleeves to the startup? Um, you know, it, I don't know if it was that hard. It was, it was certainly different. And in some ways, it's like a, a blank piece of paper that you get to, 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 to create on. So for me, that it was, it was actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And so no leader is perfect all the time. And tell me about a time or two when you failed miserably and what you learned from that. Yeah, so, you know, I took, um, I took a role at, you know, after the, the startup company, as a matter of fact, back in uh, 2000, I took a role with a consulting firm. It's kind of a... Um, a dot-com consulting firm was sponsored at the time by internet capital group and Cisco and, you know, had all this, this great internal capital, but I realized, Hey, it was a space I really didn't, didn't completely understand. And, you know, the, I, I didn't understand that the macro dynamics or the micro dynamics of the organization, but Hey, Hey, I can make a lot of money and this can be super, super exciting and successful. So I, I did that for, about a year, and sure enough, you know, the, the the company blew up. I probably wasn't nearly as successful as as I could have been, and it, it got me back to really understanding what I enjoy doing, which is back into the the pharma service space, and back to you know creating drugs and products to help to help others, which is which is what I was really passionate about. And any other sorts of failures that you think about? Um, yeah, you know, I was at a, um, a, a company and I was leading a, a sales team and we we're launching a new product and, and I was overly confident in our abilities. And I think I was so confident I'd set expectations at a level that were, were way higher than I think anyone else um, maybe had them, but I convinced everyone and sure enough, we didn't live up to, to my own um, uh, higher expectations. And and you know, we the the product was still an okay uh, launch and success, but it wasn't nearly what anyone anyone had expected. So if I would have been smarter about setting the expectations a little bit lower than than exceeding them. I probably would have been fine. But I uh, you know le learned a hard lesson about you know it's one thing to have my own set of internal expectations, but more publicly you have to sometimes temper your enthusiasm. It's a really interesting point that you bring up because you know in all these leadership manuals and programs that you read about. Um, it always talks about how you need to project this great confidence as a leader and, you know, really convey that to the troops. But you're also saying that that needs to be balanced with, you know, practical realism. How do you actually figure that out as a CEO? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, right? So, you know, as CEO, you have to really balance kind of three different groups. You have to balance your investors, your employees, and your clients. And you know, trying to stay beautifully balanced between those groups is uh, is, is a huge challenge. And if you find you're getting out of whack in any one of the those um, dimensions, you know, you're certainly going to pay the price for it. So you can't, you know, in, in doing it, you have to think about how are we going to grow, how are we going to manage and and um, and uh, achieve the objectives without either burning out your employees or without you know getting your clients uh, ticked off at you. So that 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 balance is very hard to sustain. I find is you know, you move up higher and higher, there, there's, 
you know, a greater responsibility to ensure that those, uh, th those stakeholders are all staying in balance. And it sounds like just managing even one of those stakeholders is a full-time job, much less three. What was it like the first time that you became the CEO? I mean, were you scared or how did you feel or how did you handle it? Yeah, you know, I had done a lot of research on the company and, and uh, on the space and felt there was a really unique value proposition and the company had a lot of potential opportunities. So I don't know if I was necessarily scared, but, you know, certainly, you know, you're always insecure about your own abilities and, and your team, but quickly we bonded as a, as a leadership organization and, and with our investors and decided on the right course of action. And, and um, you know, it was a really successful and exciting growth journey that, that, that we went on. In which company was it? That was called uh, Lab Connect. Okay, Lab Connect. And so how did you, you know, get your arms around being a CEO for the first time? I mean, were there any surprises that you, you know, hadn't experienced before, even as a senior leader, once you stepped into that CEO role? Yeah. So, you know, as a CEO now, instead, you know, I've had mainly commercial leadership roles like sales and marketing um, and, and commercial activity roles uh, prior to that, you know, and as CEO, you have to worry about everything. You have to worry about your IT systems, your HR, your, you know, your um, ESG, your, your, you know, your public relations, you know, all of it becomes part of the, your, your brand and your reputation. And, and, and ultimately you have to think about all these things. And, you know, that's why you need to find good leaders that you can trust and work with. And again, going back to my earlier point about ensuring that they're successful and understanding what's motivating to them, you know, work closely to understand what their, their key issues are and how we address them. And, you know, I, I believe closely in, um, you know, alignment and trying to build consensus across teams. And so oftentimes we're pressure testing ideas with, with, you know, different types of stakeholders to ensure that we're making good decisions. And, that formula seemed to work pretty well because we're able to, to align on the key organization priorities. And, you know, we went through a long process with the, the senior leadership team of figuring out what the, the biggest issues were. And as you identify those, then you're, you set your course and your strategy and, and you get after it. So for all of the, you know, the younger up and coming leaders listening to you talk right now, um, it's, it's hard to describe to them what it actually is like being, you know, in the corner office, the very top of an organization, because the buck really does stop with you. And so you end up worrying about all of these different people, many of whom you don't really know. Um, and you're working long hours and you have, you know, all of the stress. I mean, is there anyone that you could share in these, some of these challenges or feelings with, or do you have a coach or a mentor? Or what do you do with all those, you know, personal feelings? Yeah, well, so, you know, I've been, um, you know, blessed, I guess, to have a really close ecosystem of family and friends. So, you know, my wife, who I've known since college, uh, my kids are now a little, little bit older and I can talk to them. They're, they're pretty mature and understand business. And I have two or three really close friends and, uh, you know, a couple other relatives. So that's kind of the, the center of my bullseye, if you will, of, of the people that I'll share my most, most open feelings with. And then I've had a few um, mentors and, and other, uh, you know, in a couple of cases, coaches who I've been able to rely on as well, and just really open up, share share what I'm feeling, and try to get that uh, that that feedback. And so, in some cases, you know, it's, it's funny. There's there's lots of these coaching uh, organizations. As you get to be a CEO, it seems like every day I'm like, hey, join our our coaching group. And you, know, you, you almost as as much about saying no to, to things as it is to to who you actually trust to reach out to. So you have to try to balance that as well. 
And what's it like now being able to talk to your kids about some of these actual personal feelings and business challenges? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, it's really rewarding and gratifying. You know, I mentioned you know before the interview, my son's starting med school, right, and thinking about his journey and and um, you know understanding what he's trying to achieve and some of the learnings I've had of being in, in this industry, and um, you know, so so going back and forth with him, and he's a, he's a much deeper thinker than than I ever will be. So you know, understanding how he thinks about certain situations has been, you know, really for me gives me different different perspective as, as I take it into my own uh, my own career and my own job. Yeah, that, that's so cool to me. I mean, is it sometimes you have to pinch yourself like when you're talking to him, uh, wondering how he got to be such a deep thinker and like how is he so smart? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. You know, whether it's my son and my daughters, you know, I kind of get something from each one of my each one of your, your kids as, as they get a little bit older, they all think about things very differently. And uh, I love having different conversations with each of them to understand, you know, what's important to them. My youngest daughter, for example, is just opening up a baking business this summer and we've been having fun, you know, with, with um, helping her, helping her put that together and just kind of how she thinks about, you know, building the, this little company and her own brand awareness and things like that is, is super fun to, uh, to, to be part of. You're obviously helping her a lot as she's, you know, starting this baking business. Is there any way, even some small way that that's also helping you as a leader oh, and a CEO? Absolutely. Like just the, the, some of the little decisions and, and the, um, you know, some of the things that, that she's worrying about, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should be worrying about that. Like social media, for example, is a great example, right? You know, it's all about your Instagram account and, and, you know, how she's going to get it out there and, you know, we have LinkedIn and other things, but probably don't think about it enough. I'll give you a great example. We had a conversation last week about Adair's um, perception on Indeed and on Glassdoor, right? So we have all these employees who have been with the company for 20 or 30 years and they all love the company. And then you have a few people that end up leaving. They're the ones that end up posting on, on some of these, these boards. And, you know, it, working with my daughters made me think, hey, we have to be much more conscious about our, our, uh, our web presence because, you know, new, new um, employees or potential employees, that's where they're looking for their information. So you have to ensure that it's a balanced, balanced view of what the company really stands for. Yeah, such a great example, Tom, uh, especially in today's world. And you mentioned Adair again. So what's it now like being the CEO of a private company? And explain to the listeners the difference in general, you know, between a public and a private company. Yeah, so, um, you know, different types of private company. We're private equity backs. We actually have not one, but two private equity investors, which means they own the majority of the shares, you know, the, the leadership team and, and a few other external investors have, have, have the rest of it. But ultimately they're responsible for um, making, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring investment decisions and recommendations and then need their support. So I, I view it much more as a collaboration you know, when you're with a public company, there's much more formality to your to your board relationship, and you know, much more governance and other things you have to worry about. With with um, private equity backed companies, you know, we're aligned on on one fundamental principle, which is how do we grow the company, mm -hmm. right? And and I find, you know, larger PEs actually are great because they have so many resources they they can contribute. We have several people in the company who actually work for the private equity, but they're they're really part of our leadership team. And they're they're helping fill gaps that we had, and, and uh, helping us make decisions day in and day out. And it's really great to have access to to such tremendous resources. You know, another quick example: we have a leadership development 
um, you know, need in the organization. And one of the private equity was like, hey, we have this whole curriculum we've already built. Mm-hmm. So we're able to deploy that for, for our team. Um, can you tell us more about that? So are you talking about Thomas H. Lee as the, the private equity firm? And when you say that they've already built out a leadership development curriculum, do you mean that they've done that for another one of their portfolio companies that they own and they're sharing that with you or just a little more flavor around that? Yeah. So, so both um, TH Lee, Thomas H. Lee and Fraser Healthcare, the two private equity behind us have um, kind of internal teams like human capital teams, for example, that, that work with all of their portfolio companies. These, these private equity own, own a number of companies. And so they've um, invested in these functions to help their portfolio companies be more successful. So whether it's an IT, um, you know, center of excellence or, or human capital or HR uh, function, they, they look at their, across their companies, determine what those needs are. We'll put resources against that. And then companies like ours can benefit from leveraging all that experience. And I remember, you know, I think it was, I either read this or you told me, but I know that culture is very important at Adair. How would you describe the culture and, you know, in what ways does it help you have an advantage over some of your competitors? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd say, you know, I I use a lot of C words when I talk about our our culture, right? So collaboration, creativity, client centricity, right? So these are some of the words that I think not only I would use to describe our culture, but our employees actually use to describe the culture. And so, you know, collaboration, for example, is really important. You know, I I mentioned that example before when we're working on a, a drug um, device combination product, you know, that's a combination, not just of one or two scientists, but you have quality, you have engineering, you have manufacturing, you know, sales and marketing. So it's a number of different groups working together to solve, solve a client, client challenge. So creatively coming up with ideas all centered around ultimately what the clients need. So just a few examples of how our culture is critical to how, you know, how we govern the company and, and how I think our employees are, are evaluated and how they think about themselves. And, um, you know, real, another quick example, we had a, um, I was out in, in Ohio last week at one of our facilities and I was doing some skip level meetings, right? So I purposely didn't have my executive leadership team and we're meeting with the next tier down. Just really, you know, and I asked three questions, you know, wh- what's working well? what's not working well. And, and if you were me as CEO, what's the one thing you would do differently for the company? And, you know, in, in an afternoon, the amount of learning, you know, you, I received and, you know, Monday morning's ELT meeting brought back four or five ideas of, of great things that th- this team brought forward. And, you know, if you weren't asking the question, you'd never get it out of them. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's really um, a, a great re- reflection on our, on our culture for that people were, were open and honest of where the challenges were and, and ready to, to, bring ideas forward to get after them. And in addition to getting some new ideas, you're actually sending some pretty strong signals by going out in the field and asking them questions and then actually implementing them, I would assume. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it's one thing to go out and, you know, just meet with someone and talk to them and you never, never take their advice. It's another to say, Hey, you had a great idea. I want you part of this team to go solve whatever the challenge is, or, Hey, based on your idea, here's a new program that we're implementing. You know, thanks so much for, for your input. Yeah, and you talked about the importance of collaboration a couple of times, but I would assume not only in your company is it important, but then working with the clients, right? Because you're helping them implement your technology to develop new drugs or implement, you know, new new kinds of solutions. So I would think 
just even being able to have that empathy to collaborate across companies is important. Yeah, you know, uh, another quick example, I was out on Sunday night with uh, a friend who actually happens to be a client as well. And, you know, we're developing a, an oral solid version of a um, non-addicting pain medicine, right? So you think about like Oxycon or something else that may have a certain, you know, profile. Um, anyway, in the conversation we're having, he's like, hey, I'm thinking about a couple other ideas of new dosage forms and you know, sure enough, two days later, we're setting up meetings with scientists. We have in other parts of the business to think about how to uh, maybe help them solve some of his challenges. So, mm. you know, there was a great example of working with the client and then leveraging different different internal resources and sometimes it's external resources as well. You know, if we can't do it internally, but I know someone else in the in the space or in the market that, that can, we're happy to bring in either our partners or sometimes competitors to, to help better solve a client problem. So if you have a conversation like that and, you know, it sparks a new idea and that you're all of a sudden you're, you know, collaborating to potentially bring this very cool new drug or new product to market and you go back to your investors, THL, and it wasn't in your original strategic plan. I mean, do they say, hey, man, stay focused on what we already agreed to or are they open minded? I guess it depends on the level of the investment, right? So if, if they're like, hey, we identified a certain technology that we don't have that we want to go acquire, um, you know, if it's a big acquisition, right, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny around it. If it's a small, like, you know, real small tuck-in or, you know, something we can do without without massively disrupting our financials, then, you know, typically they'll, they'll let, let us handle much of that on our own. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And a lot of people now are talking about, you know, an inevitable recession. What are you guys doing to potentially prepare for this? Yeah, so I guess I'll answer it two ways. First, you know, very fortunate to be in the you know, pharma services space, which is especially in R&D and manufacturing, somewhat um, resistant to overall overall you know, recession or inflation issues. It still hits our business, don't get me wrong, but um, so... You know, overall, we're, we're in a somewhat insulated space. But with that being said, we still have um, worked through kind of three different scenarios based on the severity of the recession that's going to allow us to think through and how to manage e each of those different scenarios. So we're kind of watching watching all the, the telltale sounds, not reacting too radically, you know, one day or another. The stock market goes down, you know, 500, 1,000 points, just go up. You know, you, you don't react immediately, but if we're looking at some some trend data and we say, Hey, there's, I'll make it up, you know, no, no more investment going into the space and there's not going to be any more R and D for the next year or two. Okay. We're going to have to, you know, tighten our, um, our belt straps much more than, than we would if, Hey, you know, deals are still happening and, and things are still, um, you know, new products are still being explored and developed, then, you know, we, we should be okay. Excellent. And what advice do you have for young up and coming leaders? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is hard, but, you know, follow your passion, right? So, so, you know, don't follow the money, follow what you're really passionate about. And sometimes it takes a little while to figure that out and you might have to make some, um, some guesses or, or sometimes have some mistakes till you figure out what that passion is. But, you know, the sooner you can find that passion and get after it, the, the better off you're going to be in the long term, right? You know, I, I made the mistake early to, to get out of the, the farm and life sciences space, mm -hmm. you know, course corrected uh, quickly enough, fortunately, 
Um, but you know, some people will, will jump around from, you know, wide swings in their industry. They'll go from one space to another with no real, um, no, no real plan. And, you know, sometimes you wonder, okay, what's their long-term, long-term vision. So think about what you ultimately want to become and, you know, and, and pursue your passion and be the best you can at what you do. And, and things usually work out pretty well for you. But it's pretty hard and sorry to play devil's advocate, but sometimes it is hard like you say, to figure out what your passion is at a young age. Yeah. I mean, how do you figure that out? Yeah. So, you know, your, your first job, as I said, you know, I was thinking about, Hey, should I go be a ski instructor and in tennis? Pro? I'm like, yeah, I can do that for a little while, but I don't think that's a long-term, long-term move for me. Um, as much as I probably so enjoy today, but yeah, you know, there's only, you know, our, our mutual yeah. friend, our mutual friend Ben actually still is a tennis instructor and he's probably the happiest guy that I know. Well, yeah, there are some guys, you know, I have a friend that runs a hockey, a hockey camp and, you know, he's one guy who's been a hockey player his whole life and it's what he, he loves doing. So there, there are some rare occasions where, where people, their, their true passions and true careers have been over, uh, able to overlap. But for me, maybe there's a little bit of a broader calling, which is, Hey, how can I help um, take care of a, you know, a number of other people? And um, you know, whether it's, through within my own organization, or more importantly, the patients that we ultimately serve. In our mistakes, Matt, you talked about, um, you know, d don't worry about if you make mistakes, you're, it's going to happen. But at the time, it actually feels horrible. You know, it feels devastating. But are they bad in the grand scheme of things? Um, no, I think, I think, you know, you're, you're going to learn a lot more from your mistakes than you are from your successes. Um, you know, I, I you know, we, we played plenty of tennis back, back in the day and, you know, ultra competitive. But, um, you know, as I, as I got older, I just learned more about competing with my own self and, um, you know, learning from those times when I maybe wasn't so successful. You know, I once lost a real big match, like a district finals. And my dad's like, hey, do you feel you were prepared enough for, for the match? I wasn't expecting to. I thought he was going to try to console me. And I thought about it and I was like, no, right? And so you know, really good learning, learning example for me to think about, okay, how do I prepare and how do I really think about what's, uh, what's important to me and, and how do I get after it? Knowing what you know now, what advice do you have for that younger Tom Selleck, the charismatic Sigma Nu at Vanderbilt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I guess I would say, you know, first of all, uh, you know, follow your passion. Don't worry about the money. Like early in your career, you think a lot about money, at least I did. And, and as you start thinking less about that, and, you know, money will, will kind of take care of itself. And that's, that's hard to sometimes get by. And I know kids sometimes have, you know, the, the younger generation, you know, just truly follow what they would really like to do and don't worry about money. So you have to think about it a little bit, but more important for me is the relationships that, that you build over time are always super important. And those long-term relationships, you know, I have, many fraternity brothers and other, other friends from, from high school and college that I'm so close to to this day. And, um, you know, so think about the people you become friends with and the relationships you build and those are going to stay with you for your life. Thank you for listening to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you'd like to receive free weekly updates, please subscribe at www.imperfectleaders.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week.